0: You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Hurts here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are here discussing Solari Gentil's Crossing the Lines up to and including the Thickening today. Thickening. This is our second episode covering this book and I hope that you have been
1: enjoying it as much as I was. <laughs> you know, not enjoying it any more, Flex. You've hit a road bump, have you? There was... I want to be clear.
0: I uh-huh. still uh-huh.
1: absolutely love this uh-huh. book. Unfortunately, you're too much of a prude to truly Unfortunately, appreciate. Unfortunately,
0: I am the, too much of a prude to appreciate the intricate details yes. of this novel.
1: There, There is a uh, a twisty twist. Um, one of the things that is up incredibly early in the story is that Madeline, she doesn't like writing sex scenes. Yes. Because they're gross and they're uncomfortable. And that's like deliberately why she writes And Willow's I, I read married. this and
0: I was like, was yes. Like, yeah, great. Solari,
1: I'm so proud I of you. Let's skip the sex scenes. How few sex scenes there's going to be in this book. And then. And then. <laughs> Ned and Madeline have a sex scene. Yep. Um. And I, I made a quip because we were discussing this book at the time that uh, if Madeline can't write the sex scenes, then at least Ned is there to write them for her. Uh, which is excellent. I love that twist. And look, let me be clear: this scene is is like deliberately uncomfortable. Uh, this is not you know, supposed to to late. This is supposed to be like, is this okay? Is it okay for two characters who are writing each other? To also be in a romantic relationship because you know you should there should be trust yeah. between the characters in the story and the author and the audience but maybe this is a bit too far is how you kind of feel
0: I I completely agree and despite my complaints like I think it's actually a really great character detail I agree to I totally agree because you know we've had this entire build up of Madeline and Edward who are two authors writing about each other mm-hmm. and they both think each other are imaginary they both think that they're just characters that they're writing but. Of course, the whole journey is is where do we draw the line between the reality of the characters we imagine and how real they actually are? And
1: the answer is yes.
0: The answer is yes. The answer is yes. (laughs) And essentially what's happened over the course of these chapters is that they've both had to up the ante in terms of what is
1: happening to each other because they're both authors trying to write a book that is interesting. Yeah, It it begins with the necessary violence, which we covered last week, but the stakes start getting higher and the two authors even, they kind of debate with each other about what makes good stakes. Um, because, you know, Madeline says, and it's Made a crime novel. Sorry. What? What? Uh, <laughs> Madeline says, you know, it's uh, that the stakes here are about like physical violence to your person. Cause this is like an action, you know, crime writing story. So that's, those are the stakes. You can get beat up by some thugs. Willow may or may not be on the line. Like this there's this whole thing there. But for Ned, he says, Well, that's far too obvious. You know, the punch to the face, the bruises, the blood of of that sort is too much. So let's let's pick your life apart a little bit. Let's add some drama between you and your your quote unquote loving husband. Like there's even to the point where in the thickening chapter, both of the characters kind of reach their crescendo of like, how bad can things get?
0: Yeah. And the sex scenes in this story is really where that bridge is kind of crossed between these two characters, yeah. where we have this moment right at the start of this stretch where Madeline hits a kangaroo in her car. Yes, I wanted to talk about the scene. We, yep. we step aside and we look at how uh, Ned has written his own family's demise, yes. a bridge collapsing into every single one of his books. He's always got a car crash that he just inadvertently ends up putting into his stories. mm mm-hmm. And it's really interesting seeing how the two characters then from that point onwards, I mean, it's been from the beginning of the book onwards, but I think that's kind of the big tipping point (laughs) to me onwards, uh, start to covet each other. Mm -hmm. Not only in that, you know, there's the actual romance subplot to it, but also in that the characters start to try and change the plot of each other's stories to serve them the writer.
1: There's this undercurrent in the novel uh, to this point where both characters are clearly feeling a lot of pain from their family lives, and so they are both trying to drive a wedge in their creation uh, within what remains of their family. Like they're they're amplifying each other's pain in this really awful act of of, of it's self-harm almost in the way that it's kind of written. Um, it's incredibly powerful. And I am I honestly, I just want to say I'm impressed that Solari Gentil manages to keep this thing from becoming <laughs> too uncomfortable to even sit through. Like, it's still entertaining. You're still, like, wrapped up in all these different characters and what they're doing. We still have our rock, Leith Henry, who is the best character. The best in the novel. character. Easily the best character. Uh, but, yeah, she's she's a great character. There's lots of great characters in here, but the focus is very clearly on the the two authors and their relationship. Um, and, yeah, it's this, like, self-destructive tornado Um, And even though we don't, you know, have nukes going off, it's not the end of the world, Like the stakes at this point in the novel are just these two characters' lives. Uh, It it feels like everything, you know? It feels like two worlds are colliding.
0: Yeah, I mean, the line that kind of, I guess, encapsulates it to me is this discussion directly between Ned and Madeline where... uh, Madeline says of course they are all books are about the writer that's yes. what's amazing about your work is the intimacy you establish with the reader they hear your voice they trust that they allow you to break their hearts and make them anew <laughs> the very least you owe them is the occasional interview I think the the strangest thing about this book is that one of the problems I normally have reading like romance plots and yeah you know uh, into intimacy in stories, Is that you're heartless? Is Well, yes, but so <laughs> often I feel like I'm just reading the writer's fantasy and that's sure. kind of uncomfortable to me. Sure. Like I don't care what you like to do in the bedroom. <laughs> But the thing that Solari's done here that is really compelling is that she's written a story about these two people who are so clearly doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And she's written a story that kind of embodies the way I feel about these topics, at least to me, as I read it. Because I'm like, this is so
1: uncomfortable and so wrong and I don't want to be reading this, but that is also the point. You know, uh, as you get deeper into the story, that nothing is going well each time that Ned attempts to collect evidence, he doesn't really like find anything. He he doesn't find very much that has helped him. Yeah. Whereas Madeline, who is distinctly not in a, in a crime fiction novel, she's in a work of literary fiction, uh, she finds evidence everywhere. Yeah. There's this very interesting kind of dichotomy there where the character who is supposed to be embroiled in this fun, high stakes crime adventure doesn't really find anything to work with. They're just kind of spinning their wheels like, why did these cars get taken? What's the point of looking at the security footage? Like, does this steroid drug ring have anything to do with the mystery? Who knows? Maybe we we have no, like, strong evidence leaking anything. Um And the expectation is that everything will kind of wrap up at the end and it'll make sense, but I don't know. We'll have to see what happens there. We will have to see what happens. I yeah. think the thing that's most exciting about that
0: difference between their two worlds, that Madeline is constantly finding evidence and that Ned isn't is that that very much plays into the idea of them being real people rather than characters in a story, because something that Solari is clearly trying to critique about her own work is that in all of the Roland Sinclair novels that I've read, at least I've still not made my my way the whole way through the series, which I feel terribly guilty. We'll, about. We'll get there. We'll get, we'll there. get there. We'll get there. Um, in all of the novels that I've read, Roland is just put through hell.
1: <laughs> He, Slurry Gensel is incredibly cruel to her protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> this novel is no exception. And it's so interesting seeing that balance where
0: we have Ned who's put through hell but can't really get anywhere because he's a real person trying to solve a crime. And evidence doesn't work like it does in crime novels. Exactly. Compared to Madeline who is also a real person trying to solve a crime that might not even be there. She might yes. be imagining it because she's projecting so much of herself in the way that she writes crime fiction. Exactly.
1: There's a sense that even she, she might even like want to be, to be Ned, to be in a crime fiction story. And so she sees, you know, little things. Well, not always little things. The bottom of the sheets is a pretty big thing, but she finds things that are considered suspicious and she tries to like link them all together and see how everything connects. Um, and yeah, the, the biggest question in the mind of the reader, when you get to this point in the novel is, is she right or is she wrong? Um and you know again we'll have to see when we get to the, end of the novel but it it doesn't it's not looking good for either for no. or either of these protagonists no here. it is not uh, things are not looking looking bright at this no. moment
0: <laughs> I suppose we will talk a bit more about the crime and what's going on with the the, the mystery fiction yeah, we'll section of it. this in and the tail end of the show
1: <laughs> you're gonna have to give us a, a solution of some sort
0: oh I'm ready
1: I'm sure you are I I don't know I feel like you're a solution from last week about about all that nonsense time travel and Madeline being ahead in the timeline yeah time travel seemed pretty real to me yeah Uh, no I I think uh, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that obviously well (laughs) then you only get one point because you didn't do the other theory so get wrecked. well no I'm (laughs) saying that I'm sticking with
0: that theory I'm not saying I'm not gonna make another theory today okay
1: well you better make a a very entertaining theory that is completely ridiculous
0: (laughs) (sighs) ugh you're listening to Death of the Reader we are discussing Solari Gantil's Crossing the Lines on your Murder Mystery World Tour we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you, and I'm joined by Tim Aliff, currently managing editor of television and video for ABC News, and importantly for today, author of the John Bailey series of thrillers featuring a veteran investigative journalist getting uncomfortably close to danger. His latest, The Enemy Within, came out four days ago as this episode airs and features Bailey investigating neo-Nazis in inner Sydney. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get into things, Tim, I did just want to say this has been one of the slowest reads that I've had of the entire year, not because eventually... Anything wrong with the text. I thought it was beautifully written. I thought it was really well done. It was just a little too close to home in some ways. The big incident that people are most likely aware of that you reference in this book is the AFP raid, which happened both on the ABC's offices over work that Dan Oaks and Sam Clark were doing, as well as News Corp journalist Anika Smethurst. And you were there the day of the ABC raids. How tangible are these fears for working journalists today?
2: Well, look, June twenty nineteen, sitting at my desk in ABC TV News Channel, and someone came over and just said that the AFP are in the building. They're, they're they're raiding us. What? They were after obviously the source to the the stories that those great articles that um that Sam and and Dan had been working on. Something that really really spooked all of us was that there was a power that was written in the warrant that was used to raid the ABC, and it was the power to alter, delete, copy, or add to our files um, while they, during the course of their investigation. And that power is what really, really worried all of us. You know, just just to think that someone looking, you know, trying to get something from you, as in, you know, a source um, for a story, which, you know, as as we all know, journalism is is super important, um, that they're protected. So I have played with that idea that what if that power got into the hands of the wrong person? So that that is what worries you most of all. I mean, we have safeguards, you know, in in law that prevent, you know, bad things, bad people from doing bad things. But, you know, what if, you know, the, the what ifs are what worry us. And the fact that that power existed that is deeply concerning. And that's what had me worried. And that's why it's one of the major plot lines of the book.
0: Yeah. Talking of that, what if character? Our opening antagonist is Augusta Stone, a facsimile for racist talking heads around the world. But there's clearly a more mobile player in the book working against Bailey as we go on. Why kind of use an anthropomorphized version of these real fears as an antagonist in the novel? Is that like a necessary... Tool in the thriller toolkit, or is there more to that characterization of these real threats and this real, uh, you know, danger we see?
2: Look, I'll probably answer the question by like looking at how these people connect and how they operate because social media uh, and the dark web has really connected people across the world in ways that we haven't seen before, and I think particularly over the last, you know, five or six years, we've seen how. Um, truth doesn't matter so much anymore to a lot of people. They're looking for people to blame. They look to the establishment as being the root causes of that. And then you get these populist figures pop up and they start preying on uh, those fears, really, and that anger from people. But these people, they go looking for each other um, to connect. So, if, if you're looking for this kind of information and someone dishes up to you, you find someone to agree with, you're sitting in a little dark room in Western Sydney, and there's someone on, in San Francisco that holds the same view as you. There's someone in Berlin or Oslo or El Paso, Texas that holds the same view as you. So suddenly, these people that felt so alone are feeling like they are part of something bigger. And in fact, they are still sitting in a little room. They are still a minority but together linked in with these people all around the world, which is probably coming back to your question. This is when they feel like they're part of something bigger. And that's why these movements tend to have a real global feel to them and a a global reality to them. So in my book, I'm looking at white supremacists, not, not just in Australia, but that have this connection to the United States.
0: I wanted to dive back into Bailey more specifically as a character, because you put Bailey through a lot in these novels. And as well as seeing that progress in the book itself, we see a lot of the aftermath of other books in the series too, in The Enemy Within. you know, What's the layer of separation like between you and Bailey as a writer and author? Does him going through these tough times help you think through the tougher parts of a career as a journalist?
2: Yeah, it does. Look, you know, John Bailey's not, he's not based on me. I mean, there's many parts of him that, you know, of course is is sort of pieces of me, if you like, but he's a construct of some of the great journalists that I've worked with over the years, both, you know, here and and overseas, you know, learning from their experiences, you know, from how, for instance, trauma has affected, you know, some of those people. He, He is a very real figure to me. So when I do right and put him through the things that he he gets put through that that's actually for me it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster to write to be honest with you yeah but look i'm trying to make him as real as possible some of the things that he's gone through at the extreme end of things but the extreme end of things are, are, are real. They 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 happen. They've happened to other people.
0: Yeah, there's this line, the shining a light into dark places that I've heard you use and also pops up a lot in the book. We see John so willing to shine the light in so many dark places through neo-Nazis and terrorism and all of the things he's covered in his career, but then there's this personal dark box, this house in Leichhardt that he dare not shine a light into. Why is it so important to humanise Bailey by having this box he won't open?
2: Bailey he has for much of his life like a lot of people that are work obsessed um, that really believe in what they're doing they sacrifice other parts of their life to do that and I think you know John Bailey he sacrificed a relationship with his his first wife um, you know that marriage broke down he's had a distant relationship with his daughter but he held on just enough to be able to you know rebuild that relationship when he really hit rock bottom and was back in Sydney uh, in this book, I've I've looked at him wanting to avoid going into that vulnerable place for him. He's the kind of guy that is better when the wheels are still turning, you know, if if he's constantly on the move, if he's chasing something, if he's doing something chasing a story or doing something that he feels is the right thing to do, he doesn't need to deal with some of those things that other humans deal with, like relationships, like loss. So for him he's avoided that stuff. And that's one of his flaws. He, he, he may be good at, um, you know, chasing down bad guys. He may be good at, um, telling other people's stories and helping them by telling their stories, but he's never really good at telling his own. And I think that's what makes him quite human.
0: Yeah. I think there's something really interesting to that idea of, uh, you know, his, his flaw being so apparent, but also being the thing that drives him. And it's something that's, you know, very prevalent, I think in a lot of thriller fiction. And you also touched in there, like the parallels between how he's telling other people's stories, but kind of not exploring his own. And through that, we also have Annie as a character in this book, who kind of comes up as his flip side, the person who's, you know, had to deal with their demons after having a similar
2: past in the Middle East. These other characters, they're not there to tell us stories about Bailey. They're there to tell us stories about life. Um, and Annie Brooks' character is a really important one for me in that she's a really um, strong and deeply flawed person as well. You know, she's she's an alcoholic. Um, she's had, you know, the, the similar sort of PTSD problems that Bailey's had, but she's more open in talking about it. I mean, in some ways, she's showing Bailey um, how to talk about it. and. He's not a bad listener for her, but he's never quite really – up for talking about it himself.
0: Yeah, I think the reason I love their relationship so much in the book is simultaneously it feels as though they are these two flip sides to the same story and such powerful characters in their own right, but they also serve each other as characters in a way that I thought you did really well. Um, there are a lot of parallels in characters who have had similar life paths like uh, Harriet and Ronnie and uh, Palmer and Harding that I, I, I'll, I'll kind of keep light on so people can actually read the book, but I think that I wanted to just highlight that as an example of one of the really strong Writing decisions you made going through this book that really helped me carry through it, despite how tough I said as it was, because it was such a great read, but still really difficult in that way.
2: Yeah, look, I I, I mean, thanks for saying that. I mean, look, strong female characters are really important to me. Um, And, you know, I'm really conscious of the reader, the readers I'm trying to connect with. Um, You know, some people have told me they've read this book in in two sittings. You know, I mean, Chris Hammer was kind enough to read this for me and gave me a, a ripping cover quote. He said, look, I've you know, I haven't I've read a book like this in years where I just sit, sat there and the page turned themselves. And I was really, you know, chuffed to hear him say that. Um, and I think big characters help you do that and not just on the plot line. I think if you can develop those characters that are going to take you along for the ride and that you really, really care about. Um, developing those characters is really important for me.
0: Yeah, well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It has been such a pleasure talking with you, and it's such a pleasure actually getting to the end of this book. It was well worth it in the end, despite the, the struggle that it was for me, and I really appreciate your time.
2: Join you, Felix. Thanks so much for having me on. Tim's
0: latest book is The Enemy Within, the third in the John Bailey series, and we will have links up on the podcast to where you can grab yourself a copy if you're interested, and I hope you are, because it is a really great read. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Solari Gentil's Crossing the Lines, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second You're listening to Death of the reader Flex and herds here this is your murder mystery world tour. We are discussing Solari Gentil's crossing the lines we've just read up to a thickening and herds yeah I'll flex it's time to talk about this mystery last right. week on the show I was talking all about how this was clearly a story of time travel because one of the titles for this book elsewhere in the world where it is published is after she wrote him it's true it's true and clearly this is a case of Madeline setting up all of these events and then driving off into the city and committing crimes around Ned so. just to you know help sell her new right,
1: book right, right. and killing Vogel and killing that's, that's right yeah, that's I absolutely understand. right yeah I got you but this week I have to pose a different theory
0: so I suppose let's start by addressing the new pieces of information that we have so far <laughs> which pieces so first of all we've now found out that jeffrey vogel was gay yeah which we've, is we've now found a out story. that elliot kaufman willow's husband uh does steroids and also After the gym
1: he goes to the gym with his friends he's got a bunch of buff buff boys and, and also and
0: attended the opening event of willow's gallery yes. despite saying that he wasn't going to and yeah. was seen around the stairwell at the time that uh that vogel died interesting which they see on the security footage, and also uh, one of Jeffrey Vogel's co-workers, Peter Burke, who is a journalist for Channel 6, has has managed to get Ned to come and talk to him, expecting that he was going to confess his guilt, but instead has uh, agreed to join in Ned's amateur investigation. So probably not Peter Burke then. Probably not Peter Burke. And the thing that I wanted to kind of start with today, Herds, is that I mentioned at the end of last week that I felt like both of these writers were going to write themselves into a hole, And I kind of... Still agree with that, but I don't think last week when I made that quip that I was quite aware of the way this novel was going to go. Uh, in what way, Flex? How do, you, how do you mean? Well, because I said uh, that both characters were going to end up writing each other into a situation from which they could not escape. And I thought that was just going to be a literary device because each of them needed to reach a climax and then, uh, you know, move on in their story. So, you know, Ned was going to end up in prison, for example, and maybe Madeline was going to end up with uh, you know mental health issues, such that she wasn't allowed to continue writing, and I think I was pretty on the money with that prediction, okay. which I kind of I, I kind of made just as a point about the inevitable end goal of this novel being that each author was you know had to reach a point where the other was in strife.
1: Sure, sure. So do you think you still think that's accurate? I, think I still that's think a... that's
0: accurate. But last week when I made the claim, I thought it was just going to be a natural part of the fiction. I thought it was just going to be like the crime novel needs the crime protagonist to end up in a dire situation. But of course, then that means Ned can't write anymore about Madeline. Oh, no. What I did not expect was that they were going to fall in infatuation with one another. I know, right? It's a great twist. And that <laughs> they're actually going to write each other into that hole out of jealousy.
1: That is brilliant. <laughs> I guess uh, my, my question is because if two authors are each other, which is the real one, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. I, I would love for you to pose both a theory that is uh, a metatextual one, which it sounds like you have quite handily said, you know, they're both going to write each other in a corner out of jealousy. That's that's fine but if we were to take that both of these are real stories that happen to real people, yeah. what about Ned? Do you think that there is an actual killer of Vogel?
0: I, I want to get to that after we've okay. kind of dealt with Madeline because I, sure. think, I think there's a much more clear-cut explanation we can give to okay. Ned's story because it's the crime story,
1: right? I, I mean, for sure. That's why I'm asking it. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah. What do you want to I, I propose don't know. as
0: the like, real-world answer? You know? For Madeline, I'm just going to say that I, if I was writing this story, would not have an answer in mind. It would sure. be about the ambiguity of whether sure. or not she is sure. right. And I think Think that that's probably going to be how her story ends. We are not going to find out, sure. you know. If I had to say who I believed more, um, I, you know, I probably would believe Madeline. Uh, I, I don't think that she has a real hand on what's going on, but it's clear that yeah. Hugh is at least
1: not telling yeah. the whole truth. I, I, I do want to be clear. I'm not just asking this question because I want you to give me the detective's answer, but also because a huge theme is, you know, in Solari Gentil's dialogue with the reader do you believe Madeline? That is such a big part of the story. And that's why I wanted to ask you, like, do you believe her? Do you think that she's, that she's crazy? Has she lost the plot? I think, I think so far based
0: on what we've seen, I, I tend to believe Madeline in that Hugh is not telling the truth about something. And there is obviously a reason for that. I believe Madeline is probably blowing it out of proportion in her brain because that's part of who she is portrayed as a character. Uh, but I, I don't think we'll ever actually get to know it.
1: Now let's finally jump over and talk about Madeline. Yay, Man. my favourite character. Because this What's is the crime fiction section. They, there should be a murderer somewhere in here. Yeah. So it it is
0: very obvious yes. in the metatextual version of events that... Maddie was probably going to write Adrian Barrington, I think his name was. the uh,
1: Willow's agent?
0: Yeah, Willow's agent in as the murderer. But as Madeline has said several times through the story, she doesn't actually know who the culprit is. And even though it, it very obviously was going to be Adrian because of that publishing angle, I think that in the end, it's probably going to end up being Elliot or Willow, but they're going to frame Ned.
1: I will point out that Elliot specifically calls out Ned as a murderer so it, it seems as though in the thickening chapter he believes Ned to be the killer of Vogel or maybe of somebody else um but I, I don't know that's up to you I guess who you want to suspect or, or believe is the killer um that said you know Willow potentially being the murderer isn't a theory that like holds a lot of water in terms of the the actual evidence as no absolutely say? not But I don't know. I know if there's any other characters that would fit the bit. But
0: then if we do what we did with Madeline before and we just say that we accept Ned as being the real character who is writing things and he's not a fictional character himself. Which she should. Which she should. Then we could probably say that he has been slowly coming to accept that he's been set up by Willow. And that's why he's been writing Madeline as having her loved ones pull away from her. You know he doesn't want to believe that Willow's framed him in the same way that Madeline doesn't want to believe that, uh, Hugh's cheating.
1: You think it's going to be a dark ending? You don't think there's any hope for these characters? Oh yeah.
0: I, as I said, they're going to ride each other into a hole and that hole is going to be that one that he's probably in prison for, uh, stabbing uh, Elliot and for Vogel's death. And I'm still not entirely sure of the shape it'll take with Madeline, but I think that it's very much going to be that Willow is, now that she can essentially frame him, just puts him in prison to get the issue over and done with.
1: I mean, I want to be clear, the reason why I'm I'm being so, like, grilly on you is because uh, you know, it, it's it's both a clever answer, but also a very easy answer to say yes to every question which like it like i understand that that is the truth you know when you when you are given two like is it this thing or this thing the answer is yes that is true and clever and like we've read enough murder mysteries to understand that somehow the two truths that seem to be in complete opposition they need to work together somehow we just don't understand it yet right but i do think that with a with a novel like this that is based in like real human lives um, at the at the core of it, it is important to to dig deeper and to try and look at the granularity of it. Look at their lives, both both considering uh, both sides of the coin as real and as fiction, as fantasy and reality, so that we can get the entire perspective on this novel.
0: I suppose the last thing that we should talk about uh, before before we depart today, hers before we 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 lay this mystery to rest, mm. is that. As far as, as far as mysteries go so far, if I'm correct, which I may well be, yes. um, then, you know, this has been an incredibly sparse mystery, a very, very sparse mystery, because we see the details being put there as they go. It, it makes it very difficult to approach this novel as a mystery reader, but I think that if you are into mystery fiction so far, then... This is still a really fascinating novel to kind of pick apart the assumptions you make when going into a novel.
1: It has a lot to say about the nature of violence and about the authors who put who who like to write murder mysteries. So shout out to Slow gentle for putting yourself on blast, uh, <laughs> which is excellent.
0: Let's just say, let's just say, I really hope that this novel doesn't describe the relationship Solari has with Roland Sinclair because that oh, no. that would be concerning.
1: Well, we, we you know, maybe we'll talk about that next week. I don't know if we have enough time to oh, oh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm very excited to spend all of next week just gushing about this novel because oh, absolutely. I mean it's not like I've been containing myself but oh, no, I've been trying not. to dial it back uh, just a little bit so I still have a little bit left in the tank for next oh, no, week
1: I, I've been enjoying watching you uh, sp- s- not spin your wheels but just go off on tangents talk about <laughs> all the important stuff yeah um, so which, which theory you want to go with you want to go with the time travel one or this much more concrete one if I sarcastically say this
0: time travel one are you going to hold me to that and withhold yes, points absolutely. okay well then I'll say this week's Yeah, it's
1: almost got him. (laughs) Almost got him. I was this close to catching him in a in a sarcasm trap. A sarcasm prism. Prism prison. A sarcasm prism prison. Somebody make that. I'm gonna make that. That sounds like a thing I could probably do. That sounds there, like in a, a good story. mystery novel. Sarcasm Prison Prison.
0: You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Solari Gentils, crossing the lines. We will be back next week discussing all the way to the end of that novel. Hope you get the chance to read it before you join us Please then. Do. This has been your Murder Mystery World tour on 2SER.
2: We will see you then.